This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. It is a sunny day in the neighborhood, unless you're my laptop. I just opened it up, and it's low on battery, and now I've got to figure out which cord goes where. How many cords do we have in life? What What is it that we were doing when we were not unraveling cords? You know, it's amazing to think back into the 80s, 70s, even part of the 90s, and you think, wow, what were we doing when we weren't checking things on our phone or unraveling cords? Imagine all that free time. You know what we were doing? We were watching annoying sitcoms. That's what we were doing. That's honestly, that was filling up our time. Why are you sitting there watching that annoying sitcom? I don't know. It's on. Nothing else happening. It wasn't like we were making better use of our time. I really believe people are more hobby-oriented now than they've ever been because you can do stuff on demand. That's available to you. That's kind of how the world is going. All right, I have this unraveled. Now, if only I could reach this plug. Ah, I, I can't get there. All right, sorry, laptop. We'll have to do it laptop-free today. Here's what we are doing today. In just a few minutes, we're going to be talking about We Are Lake Erie Day. Do you like Lake Erie? You spent some time in Port Burwell or Port Stanley this summer, maybe walking along the beach? Yeah. Did any algae bloom jump out and bite your foot? Not this summer. And I'm not saying that it can, but this algae bloom, this is a big deal. And there are some people who are helping to at least bring Lake Erie to the forefront of everybody's mind, and we can actually all help out today. So we'll get to that in just a moment, because the federal government and the provincial government are supposed to have done something, and get this, they haven't done it. Maybe it's because one's conservative and one's liberal, and they don't tend to get together on things. Not sure. We're going to talk about that. We are also going to look at a new survey that is out in London, and it deals with accessibility. Jerry LaHaye did something a few weeks ago that was so eye-opening, and I hope he does it again. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping everybody gets a chance to do this. And it dealt with sidewalks in the city and how difficult it is to get down certain sidewalks because they're in disrepair or they're just old. And if you are in a wheelchair or if you are using a motorized scooter and you're doing it because of a disability, it's difficult to get around. Well, that's just one way of getting around. The city is now asking for information on its accessibility transportation. And there are some issues there, too, and they know it. So we will talk with Professor Jeff Preston, and we'll get his thoughts on this, because he's been an advocate for a long time, and he's talked to a lot of people. He's got great experience personally, so he's going to join us and and give us his thoughts on whether this is even the right strategy to go about something like this. And the other thing that we are going to fit in at some point happens to be the preparations for what hasn't been called this yet, but maybe we'll call it this now, uh, FOCO 4. Later this half hour, we will be talking about FOCO. In a world where no one takes responsibility for their actions, neighbors and law enforcement give it two thumbs down. Coming September 28th, Fake Homecoming 2019. 
directed by overprivileged teens who don't understand that videos stay on the internet forever. Forever. And produced by parents who never taught them respect. Based on a true story. Foco 4. This year, they are really clamping down. From the people who brought you Fleming Drive riots. Thank you to Eric Scott for that. Thank you to Jim Kelly for his help on that. I'm not trying to make fun of Foco because I don't want anybody falling off the roof this year. But you take a look at what it has become. It's like it is preparing to create a motion picture. It is. The amount of services that have had to get together and be in meetings and come up with ideas, it's it's wild to see what has had to go on. And London's not alone. We'll talk about this later. But London's not alone in events like this. And I don't know how you get it through to students because they seem to enjoy being out in the 20,000s and wearing purple in this city and wearing other colors in other cities. But we'll look at FOCO 4. And hopefully we don't have to call it that. First, though, on London Live, let's get to the algae bloom in Lake Erie. And let's get to Lake Erie itself. There is a hashtag that can be used today because today is a big day. It is We Are Lake Erie Day. And Kelsey Scarfone joins us to talk about what this is. Kelsey's a program manager dealing with water with environmental defense. Kelsey, can I say happy We Are Lake Erie Day? Yeah, it's We Are Lake Erie Day. So we are celebrating Lake Erie with a hashtag um, today, and we're really encouraging people to get on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, and share stories about why the lake is so important to them. And let's face it, the lake is important. It should be important to all of us because we're drawing drinking water from it each and every day in this area. And it's a great place to hang out in the summer. There are so many different ports that you can go to. But we have heard, you know, recently about things like the algae bloom. How much of what you're doing is drawing attention to, hey, we got to protect this thing? Yeah, that's absolutely um, the whole reason behind uh, hosting We Are Lake Erie Day. We want to share all of the amazing stories, and we know that so many people, um, for so many people, Lake Erie is an absolute gem and somewhere that they really treasure. It's also, of course, so important to get our drinking water from, uh, important home to many species, um, so good ecological uh, benefits from the lake as well. So we're really sending the message that these, um, these things that we hold so dear are under threat, and we need to demonstrate our support for the lake so that we can be spurred to take action to protect it. What do people need to know about Lake Erie and some of the things that need to be protected? Yeah, absolutely. One of the biggest threats to Lake Erie are these annual algae blooms. They are toxic. They're often quite massive, spreading all the way over the western basin. Um, and they present a real risk, not just to the environment, but also to our local tourism economy. Recent studies show it could impact the Canadian Lake Erie tourism economy by up to $110 million every year. It's a big number. Um, and it's also the spaces that we hold really dear. So by sharing these stories today, we're hoping to capture really what the lake means to people um, because, you know, we can measure 
um, all of the lake's benefits in, in numbers and science, and we have that information, but people's personal connections are very important, too. So that's what we're hoping to capture today. Well, we'll talk about the hashtag where people can certainly post what they remember of Lake Erie or some of the thoughts about Lake Erie. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But you mentioned things like the algae bloom, and it tends to be kind of a, an ominous, scary sort of thing that you hear. Is the lake in in trouble in any way? Would you look at it that way, or are we trying to prevent the moment when we say, guess what, Lake Erie's in trouble? Yeah, we're definitely trying to prevent that moment. It is, it's basically an, it's an annual occurrence now, and each year we kind of look at the data and say, how bad is it going to be this year? It's not, it's no longer a question of if there's going to be an algae bloom, it's where is it going to be, how bad is it going to be? And in any given year, that bloom could be um, getting really close to Canadian shorelines. This year, even, we've seen it get um, pretty close by uh, the places that we treasure. And and so, in any given year, it could really um, threaten um, the things that we hold dear, including our beaches and our recreation opportunities, but also the um, local ecosystems, our tourism economy. So, um, this is really about recognizing that there's an issue and um, also recognizing why it's so important that we, we take action. And by showing our support, um, we can kind of grow a wave of you know, people and stories that um, will inspire uh, our elected officials to take action. It will inspire communities to take action and individuals to be um, really raise that awareness and be engaged in the, in the problem and why it's so important uh, to defend against it. We're talking with Kelsey Scarfone, program manager dealing with water with environmental defense. And we're talking about we are Lake Erie Day and you can use that hashtag on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. So we are Lake Erie Day. Kelsey, we'll get back into the algae bloom in just a minute, but let's talk about the the happy stories that people can tell or any kind of stories they can tell. How would you like to see them use the hashtag we are Lake Erie Day? So we would love for your people to use that hashtag on, on whatever platform, maybe all the platforms that they enjoy using, like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, um, and really share stories as to why Lake Erie is so important to you, or maybe some really special memories that you have of the lake, some nice photos that you have of places that you visited along the shoreline. Um, So that's really what we're looking for today. Now, the algae bloom is something that maybe we don't necessarily have a a good knowledge of in terms of, of what it does or even what has caused it. Do we know any of that at the moment, what it does, how it, how it would affect Lakeshore if it came too close and, and how it got there in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. So algae blooms are caused by an excess of nutrients entering the water, and so that's mainly phosphorus. So when too much phosphorus runs off the land and gets into the water, um, it, it can lead to these algae blooms growing and often growing out of control, which is the case in Lake Erie. Um, and for Lake Erie, we have an algae bloom that's actually toxic. So it's blue-green um, algae, and the toxic piece of that is the cyanobacteria. So um, that can be very dangerous to humans and animals. And so if a blue-green algae bloom comes comes near shore to beaches or marinas or places that people access the water, um, that access would be shut down. People wouldn't be able to use it. Um, if it gets too close to our drinking water intakes, that um, our drinking water systems can... Um, can treat for that and address that issue, but that becomes very expensive and it's an added burden on our drinking water system. Uh, so it can have quite a, quite a lot of impacts uh, on top of, obviously, for tourists who 
uh, flock to the to the Lake Erie shoreline this time of year, I can really deter them from planning their trip and spending time in those communities. Yeah, man, we don't want that. Port Burwell, Port Stanley, we, we've got so many great spots along the way. Uh, as far as 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 finding it, fighting it, is there a way to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So our government, uh, the federal and provincial governments. Of Ontario and Canada last year released um, an action plan on how they were going to address this issue. And so there's many pieces of that. There's some great conservation groups, uh, agricultural groups who are doing some amazing projects to address this, this issue. I'm actually at a workshop today learning about all the latest science and what people are doing. Um, but what we're waiting on still that was due back in February is the government action plan on how they're going to implement um, the things they said that they've done. And we were expecting to see that in February. So now fast forward to late August, we're in the middle of algae season. We still haven't seen that joint plan from the um, Ontario and the federal government. So we're still waiting on that piece. We're hoping that, you know, by sharing our stories, we can really highlight how important it is to get moving on these issues. Um, especially when there's so many community groups and organizations on the ground that are doing projects as well. Kelsey, thank you for the time today. Again, the hashtag we are Lake Erie Day. Share your stories on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. If you've got a picture of you beside the lake, throw that up there and get that noise out there so that maybe the province and the feds can say, oh, yeah, we had, I had that. It's underneath this pile of papers. We better get that done. Kelsey, again, keep up the great work and thanks for the time. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Kelsey Scarfone, program manager dealing with water and environmental defense. And you might say, okay, well, why does this matter? It's the same thing that goes on with everything that we have in our world that needs attention, but not immediate attention. If you have a baby in your house and the baby cries, you need to give that baby immediate attention. You need to go in and see, is the baby hungry? Is the baby sleeping funny on their arm? Is the baby wet? Whatever. Needs immediate attention. You go in, you take care of that. And we've got a lot of stuff like that in our lives. If you have a pet, you've got to feed the pet. So you feed the pet. If you have to shovel a driveway so that you can get to work, you shovel the driveway. Those are immediate things. This is one of these things that is not immediate. Unless that algae bloom actually rolls up on shore at Port Burwell or gets into the nice shallow water and we're told you can't go in there, there's nasty old bacteria in there. And there are all kinds of stories about pets being in and around this bacteria coming out and unfortunately it costs them their life. I mean, this is not something to mess around with. Now, is it close to our drinking water intake? Doesn't look like it right now. Is it close to shore? Doesn't look like it right now. Does it mean that it never will be? Uh, no, it doesn't. But it's one of those things where it's not like a baby crying. It's not like your driveway is blocked and you can't get to work. It's, yeah, we'll get to that, but have you seen the to-do list that we've got in front of us right now? We've got a lot of stuff to get done. And then this does not get done. So that's probably why it's sitting where it does. So if you want to hashtag it, this is trending right now, thanks to people like Kelsey, at least making some noise. And if there are politicians listening, can we at least lift up the piece of paper and say, yeah, is there anything we can do? Unfortunately, then we probably get into battles with people who have been dumping stuff in Lake Erie for a while, contributing those phosphates that Kelsey's been talking about. 
And then you're left to deal with them. And they're a big-time corporation, or they're this or they're that, or they're fighting a gray area through some of the rules, whatever it happens to be. And it becomes a messy situation that usually gets shoved to the bottom of the pile because it's not baby crying or driveway blocked urgent. It's pretty easy to take a lot of things in life for granted. And one of those things is simply being able to get to where you need to go when you need to get there. If you do not own a vehicle, all of a sudden, that's a challenge. It's not a challenge that can't be overcome, but it's a challenge. If you are someone who has a disability, that getting to where you need to go can be compounded by the fact that you can't just jump on any old public transportation. You can't just call any old taxi service. You have to make use of the transportation that is provided that can allow you to bring your wheelchair, can allow you to bring along whatever else you may need. And that that can be a real issue to the point that the city of London is now asking for information by way of a survey. And they're trying to figure out how to improve the current situation because they keep hearing one thing. It's not working well enough. Joining us right now is Jeff Preston. He is an assistant professor of disability studies at King's University College to address this. Professor Preston, how are you doing today? I'm uh, doing great. Good, good. The city is is looking for input when it comes to taxi services and accessibility. And when they do this, it's something that, that becomes very wide-ranging. But if you were to look at what people want to see or what people need, where would you start? You know, I, I, I'm thrilled, actually, that this survey has come out. I'm very excited to see the city has investigated it. It's actually something that we advocated back in 2008 uh, when I made the, the trip from London to Ottawa in my wheelchair uh, to raise awareness about the lack of accessible transportation because uh, then and also now, over 10 years later, uh, it is still extremely difficult for people, uh, particularly those with mobility needs, uh, to get accessible transportation around the city, whether that's through bus, paratransit, or taxi. Um, so there's a real deficit. Uh, so I'm hoping that they're going to take this information uh, here once again, loud and clear, that there's a need for this, uh, and we'll start investing in uh, accessible cabs in the city. Well, if you look at, at some of the challenges that you uncovered 10 years ago, are are you looking at any that have been addressed, any that seem to be better than what they used to be, or are we still kind of pushing at square one? We're moving forward in some ways. And so like the, the conventional bus service, offered by the LTC is far more accessible now than it was then, which is great. Uh, almost all the buses are now accessible. It's pretty rare to find a bus that's not. Uh, the stops are now becoming more accessible. They're doing a really good job of clearing the physical stops uh, when it snows in the winter. Uh, the downside, of course, is that without good sidewalk clearing, it's very difficult to get to those stops. Uh, I would say the conventional service is moving forward in really good ways. Paratransit, however, continues to be completely overwhelmed. Uh, there are far more riders than there are buses. And even with expansions that are coming uh, very soon in terms of more hours coming to paratransit, uh, I don't see the backlog getting any better. Uh, a lot of people are still not able to get the rides they need. And the really archaic booking system uh, results in people having to book days in advance 
Uh, and even then, not being guaranteed to be able to get a ride when they actually need it. Uh, so there are people who are spending hours waiting for or riding a paratransit bus, whereas somebody who had access to a cab or a vehicle of their own could probably make that same trip in maybe 10, 15 minutes. We're talking with Professor Jeff Preston, Assistant Professor of Disability Studies at uh, King's University College, and we're looking at what the City of London is doing, which is basically having a survey saying, okay, as far as accessibility goes with regard to transportation, how are we doing? And we're getting kind of some insight into what is working, what could be improved. Now, when you talk about paratransit, is it a case where if you know you need to be going somewhere on Wednesday at one forty-six, if you book well enough in advance, does it work out? Or is this a case where even then you may be left waiting or may miss an appointment because of it? Uh, the latter, unfortunately. Uh, so the way, the way the system generally operates is you're required to call three days in advance. So if you were going to go on a Wednesday, uh, you'd be you know, calling on, on Monday or, or the Friday, potentially. Um, when you make that booking, though, uh, if people have gone in before you and have booked up those slots, then you're not necessarily going to get the time that you want. Uh, meaning that you may be arriving hours early in order to make an appointment, or there may not be any rides left at all, in which case you're kind of left on your own. Uh, this is an experience that I had uh, for years before I was lucky enough to get my own vehicle, um, something that I'd be able to drive myself. Uh, and honestly, I, I, I really fear the day when my vehicle breaks down, if I do have to go back to paratransit, I simply do not know how I'll be able to continue my professional life, my social life, if I have to rely on paratransit again. Uh, there just isn't the flexibility needed. Uh, and that's, I think, where accessible cabs are so important, because I think they offer a bit of a pressure valve release that we're able to get some people who are able to afford it or people who need kind of last-minute type booking uh, are able to transition and use that service, particularly people like myself that are fully employed, that can afford to pay for uh, a cab. Unlike somebody who is potentially on ODSP, where a cab fare would simply be completely out of question, especially for regular trips. Now, are we looking at a different fare if you are taking an accessible taxi? Uh, so as of right now, uh, the way that the AODA is written, it states that we are not allowed to charge a different rate for an accessible cab versus a, a standard cab or a non-accessible cab. So whether you use a wheelchair or whether you are walking, it does not matter. You're going to pay the same fare as everybody else. Uh, the issue, though, is that cabs that are designed for wheelchair use are far more expensive than, uh, than a typical sedan that you would see on the road. Uh, so for a, a van that has a rear-entry ramp, you could be looking up to $50,000 for one of those vehicles uh, all in in order to have an accessible vehicle that would be able to take uh, a wheelchair in the rear. Um, this is a problem that I've heard repeatedly from cab drivers who say that the way their industry is designed, they burn through vehicles very quickly. And so if you start adding a forty dollars to $50,000 price tag every few years in replacing your vehicle, that doesn't become sustainable financially for them, um, particularly because the fares are the same. Now, the solution here is not to raise the fare on people with disabilities. Uh, that would obviously not be equitable. But the solution perhaps is for the City of London, for instance, to say, you know what, maybe we need to start to uh, put some support, some financial support to cover those costs, those additional costs to make the vehicles accessible 
because it's going to be a win for everybody. It means that we're going to have fewer riders on the paratransit service. It's going to provide better flexibility with better hours using the cab for those who can afford it. Uh, it's just a win for everybody. And I would imagine, and I, I know for a fact, actually, that it is far cheaper to buy an accessible van than it would be to buy one of the large transport vehicles uh, that Voyager uses for paratransit. Uh, those vehicles are extremely expensive, far beyond what it would cost for an accessible cab. We're talking about accessible transportation in London and a survey that the City of London has put out to kind of gain more knowledge as to what is needed and, and where the needs are. And we're exploring that right now with Professor Jeff Preston, Assistant Professor of Disability Studies at King's University College. So from what you've described, it sounds like the, there is, in in a way, enough riders that could support more accessible taxis. If, if we had enough of those, is that, is that kind of what you're hearing from people, that, hey, if, if we did find a way to, to maybe offer an incentive program or something like that, that, that if you had a couple of other drivers, that that would make the difference or at least a big difference? Well, so that, that would be my one critique about right now. Um, obviously, I'm glad that they're investigating this. Obviously, I'm glad that there's an appetite at City Hall to move forward. Uh, what I'm not totally sure about is the need for a survey uh, because, as I've said, uh, for the last 10 years, we have been trying to get City Hall to take this on. Uh, there are, if you talk to anybody uh, who uses accessible vehicles, you're not going to find a single person who says, the system is perfect and I have no problems with it whatsoever. <laughs> um, I can tell you that for a fact, that everybody struggles. Everyone struggles to get around. I think the problem that, that we need to acknowledge here is that what we're seeing right now, the ridership levels that we're seeing currently on accessible cabs and paratransit and even conventional vehicles, in my experience working with the disabled population, it's not uncommon that people, when something doesn't work or if it's not accessible, people simply do it themselves. They don't necessarily complain. They don't necessarily raise the issue, but rather they simply opt out. So if paratransit is not going to work for them, they're going to find a different way because there are so many things that we have to do on top of our daily requirements of life uh, with a disability that you don't have time to be messing around with these things all the time. So what happens then for many people uh, is that they will either drive themselves, so they'll use their wheelchairs out on the sidewalks, out on the streets in the winter often, um, or they simply won't leave. They'll just stay home. They won't go out. They won't socialize. So what we're actually missing right now, I think, the question is perhaps not does the service currently work for you, but maybe a more important question for the city to be asking is what things are you missing out on in your life? What are you choosing not to do because the service doesn't work for you right now? Because I think that actually might get us a better, a better picture of just how big the gap is. Because I think if we look into it from that perspective, what do people actually want to be able to do? Not simply how is this working right now? I think you're going to see a massive gap between the lives that people would like to live comparable to everybody else versus what we're expected to live on with what we currently have access to. Professor Preston, thank you for your insight on this. We'll see what comes out of the survey, hopefully more discussion, and then a way to implement that discussion into something that's going to work for everybody. Absolutely. I, I'm very encouraged that we're moving forward on this. Let's get people moving. Have a great afternoon. You too. Cheers. Professor Jeff Preston, Assistant Professor of Disability Studies at King's University College. So part of it is better. 
Part of it is not. If you are having to organize your life to three days in advance and then cross your fingers and hope that the transportation you need to get to an appointment to get to somewhere is going to be there, that's tough. September 28th. It's not that far away. Sunday, September 1st. September 28th is FOCO. And I love Western University. But I blame anybody who happened to be in the room the day that they decided that they should move homecoming to try and put it closer to exam time and in colder temperatures in an attempt to curtail some of the activity that went on. Uh, They needed to do more research. I don't know who was in the room. I don't know who they talked to. I hope they talked to a lot of people. I, I hope they did extensive research on this. I hope it just wasn't a meeting and a decision because it was the wrong decision. And anybody could have told you that. Kids aren't dummies. And this was bound to happen. So now we've got fake home coming. And it's heading into its fourth year. And it's it's kind of it's kind of monopolizing resources and time in a lot of areas in its preparation. But it's wild to see just how much prep has gone on. And we're lucky enough right now to be joined by the Chief Bylaw Enforcement Officer with the City of London, Orist Katolik. And Orist, you've been a part of a lot of the planning for this. Now, let's face it, public safety is always number one when we're talking about fake homecoming or FOCO. Based on what is happening and what has happened in the past, how do you guys prepare for this year? Well, over the years, we've seen people do things. Uh, mainly because they've been in a state of inebriation, jumping off roofs, uh, drinking off roofs, over-occupying houses and decks, and that has resulted in serious life-changing injuries for sure. So starting last October, we put together a task force made up of London police, fire prevention, EMS, our hospitals, and of course Western and Western Students Union. And all of us have done something that we feel is going to improve the situation this year. And that includes uh, changes to uh, city bylaws. Uh, Of course, Western has amended their student code of conduct. Uh, Their students' union has really come to the table with uh, alternative programming to uh, do some events on campus that hopefully will attract the students away from the Bruffville area onto campus for entertainment. Hey, ASAP Rocky's going to be there. There was concern he was in prison in Sweden. That's been resolved, so at least that's good where the headliner is coming. Or you've been involved in a lot of things in terms of the city preparing for events or the city just being ready should something occur, but you've just named off so many different areas of the city, so many different representatives that have been together on this. How often does something like this happen where you have that many focuses from, from that many different areas in London? Well, I, I can say over the years that I've been working at the city and on different files, uh, this file has probably the largest amount of partners at the table, uh, all doing things with one specific goal in mind, and that's public safety. So everybody is doing their, their little bit, and we're coming together, we're meeting you know, the students' union are at the table, and that's, that's so important because uh, imagine London without students. They're, they're an important part of our community, but we also recognize that there's a minority of students that will do things 
that will uh, possibly injure themselves or injure others. And that's why the focus of this has always been public safety. We have also seen with kind of the rubber stamp last night, we have seen this kind of go back into the court of the students. For a while, it looked like landlords could be responsible. Is that kind of steered back to students in terms of, hey, you guys need to be responsible for what you're doing? Uh, That's absolutely correct, Mike. We're, We're not recommending that landlords be invoiced for the behavior of their tenants. So we're focusing on the occupants of the houses, the ones that are sponsoring, creating, continuing, and conducting these nuisance parties that are of a concern to us. What is next in the preparation for September 28th? Well, uh, Councillor Phil Squire will be holding a uh, neighborhood meeting on September the 12th. Uh, That's just in the planning stages uh, right now. It was announced last night at Council. And, of course, uh, we're doing a, a lot of operational planning. That's being led by London Police. But I can tell you that everybody's at the table there uh, doing their part and getting ready for a, a possible unsanctioned street party. All right. Well, Orest, keep up what you are doing. I mean, this is happening one way or the other. It has been for a few years now. But thanks for the update on everything that is playing out and the connections around the city of London. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. You too. Oris Katolik, Chief Bylaw Enforcement Officer with the City of London. So that many resources pulling together. And honestly, it is about public safety, but the teenage minds and the young 20s uh, doesn't always form completely. Stay off the roof, people. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3 